was mentioning before we started that I don't even know what this show is called anymore because Caleb keeps changing the name. So I, I don't know if the intro is even still legit if we're supposed to use it, but I, I think it's a banger, so I keep playing it regardless. Caleb will yell at me if I'm not supposed to. Bulge, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, but you don't need to worry about the name of the show. We're the Maritan Book Club now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is. That's what will remain for at least a little while. I think based on the on the amount of content the channel has otherwise and how long we go, we're probably we're probably a majority of the output from the last year, I'm gonna guess. Well <laughs> perhaps we are. Marathon Book Club. We'll find another hopefully easier Marathon book when we finish this one. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, as as uh, as Bulge just said, we are up to chapter, starting chapter four of Jacques Maritain's uh, magnum opus, uh, The Degrees of Knowledge. Uh, how did you find this one, Bulge? Um, I found it very good. A lot of it is some of, uh, I've had intuitions about this before, and I think Edward Fazer and David Oderberg talk about it in their respective books. But I think Maritain really, I think he... Well, he's more broad-minded, maybe, than Phaser and Oderberg. Oderberg's much more studied in biology. Phaser's obviously more of a physics guy when you read uh, his book on philosophy of science. Mm -hmm. uh, Maritain, while in this chapter, he does focus on what he calls new physics and is for us just contemporary phys physics. He does delve into biology and, by implication, at least, chemistry. And he seems at least to cite the relevant sources really well and to have some command of the contempt of the literature of his time, which I thought was very impressive. But overall, it makes a very good uh, philosophy of science argument um, relying on his previously established terms of epistemology. Mm -hmm. I, I think we, we've commented previously how he kind of will just flex on the reader occasionally and like and you know give footnotes from the Summa entirely in Latin and switch into French or switch into German and just like has sort of shown off his breadth as an academic. Like you said, though, in addition to philosophy, he seems to really know. Again, this, this book is uh, what the original was in. I keep forgetting this every time. What's the original publication date for Degrees of Knowledge? Uh, I can look it up right now. We should know this by now. I think we look it up every time. <laughs> I think we, well, the problem is because we have we have a translation that's from like the fifties. Nineteen thirty-two. He wrote it as originally. a relatively young man. I think he must have been in his thirties or forties. Mm -hmm. And then goes on to write like you know another hundred books in the next sixty years. But yep. Uh, but when we talk in the thirties, the the physics that he's discussing is the brand new revolution in physics, both relativity and quantum mechanics. And he seems to have a decent grasp of what the the current state of the physics is, and what this, what who the major players are, and cites them in relevant ways. And like you said, when he when he makes his his other discussions of biology or chemistry, he seems very aware of what the state of the art is in that field. So he he really comes off as very much a Renaissance man in this that he he knows what is going on in every discipline that is that is relevant to academia in the 1930s. It does is... get somewhat annoying when he has an entire phrase in Greek in the middle of his text. <laughs> and my note on that page was just, fuck you. And then I moved on. I did not even bother to try and translate it. It's all you can really do. Yeah. At, at least at least usually the Greek is in footnotes. He, with, with the exception of the occasional Latin phrase, he's pretty good about sticking to one language in the main text. Well... So yeah, this was one instance, but it did annoy me. It's like I don't yeah, it's fairly early on. I don't remember which page, but it did really kind of annoy me together with him um 
bringing back our pet peeve from the previous chapter of the trans objective subject and the trans subjective object, which are annoying to say the least. Thankfully, he brings them up, I think, a sum total of twice in 70 pages. And to, to his credit, so he does have a tendency of just inventing terms. The, and he invents several in this chapter as well that I, I think I've sort of taken to using because I've seen them in other contexts. Um, the the ones in this chapter, I, I find at least a little more understandable. Like the, the cis-objective and the trans-objective subject, I still am not entirely sure. Like we, we sort of muddled through it last time. His his terms that he used to describe the, the physical sciences in this chapter, I think, are a little bit more coherent. And I, I, I get tired of reading them over and over again. You will hear us say the words physico-mathematical sciences probably a dozen times in the next hour or so. Are you um, intending to use the word imperial schematic and imperial logical a lot? I, I I use imperiometric like in my whenever I'm talking about epistemology outside of maritime like I, I, that that one is rubbed off of me because I think it's just so good. But that one again, it's it's understandable. I I know what he means when mm-hmm. he says imperial yes. schematic. So uh, I guess we should hop into it. So uh, the previous chapter, or so so far, we had his his uh, introduction on metaphysics. Um, chapter two was on philosophy and experimental sciences. Chapter three was his summary of critical realism, which was is his epistemology based on on Aristotelian or um, yeah Aristotelian Thomist thought. And now we're getting into chapter four, which is knowledge of sensible nature. So as I mentioned, he's going to end up getting into, uh, in a large part, he's going to be discussing modern physics and how it. Um, the, the effect that has on on the philosophy of what he calls the philosophy of nature. Do you want to go ahead and get us started? Yeah, just before I guess I'll give a slight uh, I don't know if it'd be a warning or just in a just a yeah I'll just make a little statement. He's not actually getting into his ontology of sensible nature. He's talking about the proper approach to it, the epistemology of it. So he doesn't actually get into what would be the Aristotelian Thomistic ontology of nature, or at least he does only by sort of implying it. I think he at one point talks about causality as the actualization of potency. But outside of that, he's sort of assuming it in the background that you either already agree with it, or at least from agreeing with his epistemology, you'll be led to it. So, all right. So uh, he begins with say with uh, the main. I think chapter, not chapter one, part one, where he talks about the main types of knowing is almost a bit of a recapitulation of the last chapter in the degrees of abstraction. Uh, he talks about, for example, one thing I've highlighted is science, which is knowledge in the strict sense of the word, considers only the intelligible necessities immersed in the reality of this world of existence. And goes on to say Aristotelian tradition recognizes three principal universes, which correspond to what Thomists call the three degrees or orders of abstraction. They are the universe of the principles and laws of sensible and mobile nature, or the world of physica, the universe of quantity as such, or the world of mathematica, the universe of being and of the intelligible objects which of themselves do not require matter as a condition of their real existence, or the world of metaphysics. So he's basically saying, okay, before we can approach directly into sensible nature, I'm going to have to re-educate everyone or or remind everyone that there are three orders of knowing in their... There are three basic orders of knowing. We'll get into physica and find out there's actually this then splits off into two different 
areas of knowing, such as ontology, the being, the metaphysics of specific physic of specific beings, or the study of beings of natural things, and uh, what would what did he call it? Is a physical mathematical science right. or the study of it, which is what we would now recognize as contemporary physics. Uh, then he has a and in what I would class as an unfortunate digression into the trans-objective subject and the trans-objective object, which I think I've sort of understood better because he the, how he uses the word trans is an, it's an original intent. It means beyond. So I've, let me just read this. Let me see if this is passages worth reading. All right. So along the lines of a terminology proposed above, what I just read, we might say that if the whole complex that the knowing subject can attain in the trans-objective subjects submitted to its intelligible grasps, when Vin he explained this, explains this by saying all the elements of the whole complex presented to the intellect as objectifiable, so by trans-objective subjects he means any element in the complex of reality, which is presented as objectifiable as an object of study, constitutes, in general, the transobjective intelligible. Then the first zone, which the human intellect is in contact in that vast whole, is a universe of objects which can be realized only in sensible or empirical existence, and let us call it the universe of a sensible real. So the transobjective intelligible is that that which is intelligible, which might go beyond the object itself, this is the world of the sensible real. So it's not just in sensations and in the sensible itself in which it resides. Of course, everything that is sensible usually has a nature as such. I can't think of any exception to this rule. Think and then, have to. yeah, I can't think. Yeah, I can't possibly think. Except maybe if it's a you're denominating something a being of. We'll get to this later, but you can kind of <laughs> denominate a being of reason in a real thing such as explaining a real thing with imaginary numbers but the imaginary numbers aren't actually touching but numbers in themselves aren't touching you either but the imaginary numbers especially so i suppose we have and then uh so he's basically uh how should i say in this section he's describing the free the free orders abstraction the physica mathematica and metaphysica he's describing them in his own somewhat unfortunate terminology in my opinion uh, and then he says, how can the human intellect get beyond that universe, the sensible real? It may sidestep the real by ceasing to order its knowledge to that supreme value, which is existence outside the mind. I mean, by busying itself with objects which can be realized, if they are realizable, only in sensible existence, which are, but which are conceived without order to existence. We have then the second zone of a trans-objective intelligible, the universe of the praetor real, which I read as almost real, the universe of the mathematician. So basically it's, hmm, how do I explain this? Well, the key sentence is objects which can be realized if they are realizable only in sensible existence, but which are conceived without order of existence. So a number, let's take a number one. It, it is only realized, let's say, when there is an instance of an individual thing or an individual organism, an individual ontological entity, such as one ant or one atom alone. 
this would be a realization of the number one, but it can be conceived without that realization. It can be conceived as pure quantity. Now, the third order, it may extend beyond the sensible, the intellect that is, by busying itself of objects which are conceived as ordered to that supreme value, which is extra mental existence but which can be realized in a non-sensible, non-empirical existence. This is the third zone of the transobjective intelligible, the universe of a transsensible, by that he means going beyond the mere sensible, the universe of the metaphysician, which opens out into the transintelligible for us, but which, which can be known only by analogy. By transintelligible, he's, I believe, using the word trans to just mean beyond so transintelligible would just mean beyond that which is intelligible for us, and therefore for the metaphysician, at most cases, unless he's dealing directly with the ontology of an ant or something like that, he's dealing with things that he can only know by analogy, which is why when we speak of God, St. Thomas says we only speak of God analogically. Well summarized. So, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harp on this because I think this is the same thing that the, when we talked you might you might have been on that call when I talked to the 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 contradictorious guys. I think it was the same confusion. Is and I'm going to nitpick this because it drives me crazy. So we have our three degrees of attraction. As you mentioned, physica gets sort of divided into into two different camps. There's this empirical aspect of physica, which is what is what the modern sciences have kind of become. Is what can you measure? What can you what can you read on a dial? And then there's the the ontological side. There's this philosophy of nature. You know what what is the physical thing? How does it behave? You know what what do we know of its essence? And this is this is distinct from metaphysics. So when we talk about the ontology of an ant, that's a physics question. It's a it's a philosophy of nature question, but it's not a metaphysics question. Because the ant is a physical, the ant is a physical thing, is its its ontology is physical. So it's and and Maritain is is good to make the distinction there, but we we tend to just call anything philosophical metaphysical. The philosophy of nature is physics. It's it's it is not metaphys or it's, it's physica. I guess I should say we want to distinguish the, the the broader degrees of abstraction from the the modern sciences, but. Questions of ontology can still be physica if they're the ontology of physical things. Yeah, I I think I believe I think I saw that recording with you guys, but uh, mm -hmm. my my I, I don't know. It would not be my criticism of either of you, but I suppose they were saying metaphysics is only the study of the conditions of existence themselves and. For that, you wouldn't technically, although it in actual wow. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, stop you real quick. I I have no idea if it's it on does. mine or if it's on the recording. Uh, you are you are breaking up a good bit for me, Bulge. All right, it might be my internet cut out for a bit because I couldn't hear you. Give me a moment. Sure. And it might be entirely on my end, but it definitely I'll was. I'll just uh, I'll connect the Ethernet cable, which I had there previously disconnected before the recording started. Arrogantly thinking I wouldn't need it. Give me a <laughs> like twenty seconds. Sure. To connect. I can. Is it okay? It should have connected now. If you can hear me. Yep, I think it's good now. 
Maybe. All right. Good. Good. All right. Yeah. You you want to try that that and again if it if it's is it yeah try try that try that again. I think you're good. Sure. 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 Um, I suppose my one criticism of the conversation is that uh, knowledge of ontology of things, of a knowing of the being of a specific thing in the world, does require nature of physic knowledge of physica. I mean, not nature. But uh, I suppose metaphysics as such technically does not actually require much knowledge of physica. Um, technically, it wouldn't require any. I suppose the, the Cartesian man haunted by the demon would not technically need uh, the uh, would not need. He might not actually experience anything which is not illusion. But he could know the conditions for real existence, such as he could still actually come to a conclusion of act and potency despite only experiencing illusion. Uh, but for ontology, to know that water is essentially H2O and the nature of things in the world, you, of course, need knowledge of physica. But typically, our study in metaphysics proceeds from ontology and then to metaphysics. It is rare that someone jumps directly to the conditions of existence as such. Sure. My, my point just being that there that ontology can still be a, a subset of physica if it's the ontology of physical things. So again, when you talk about the ontology of an, of a, of an ant, that is a physics question, not a metaphysics question. Yeah, at this point, this will get into a semantic discussion of what physica means, because if physica means the study of mobile change, and are we really studying the event? Is ontology studying the nature of, of uh, the nature of the change of natures? Or would that not be ontology anymore? Because the physica is just the study of how things change, as well, I think it's, it's, Aristotle it's, it's, originally maybe meant it. Well, it's the study of things that can change. change. The study of change of, of mobile okay. nature. All right, it's the study of things that can change. Okay, that makes more sense. All right, I'm I'm on but, your side now. Back. <laughs> Again, but, as I was, I think in our last discussion. But it, so in any case, I also uh, your your example for the Praetor real I really like because when he talks, and this is something that's sort of interesting is. Um, and he'll get into it more when he talks about beings of reason, but like, is is the number one a real thing? Is the number three a real thing? Is a circle a real thing? Mm -hmm. And as you it's pointed a perfect out- perfect line. He gives the example later of when he's talking about what geometry is the real one, which that yeah, yeah, yeah. didn't exactly go over my head. I understood his main point, but the, the technical details most certainly did. Uh, when he's talking about that, well, the including geometry is the real geometry, but there is no such thing as a perfect circle, a perfect line without width, and so on and so forth. Yeah. But you, but like you said, just like the number two, like two can exist in two things. A circle can exist in a circular thing, mm -hmm. but we can also we can abstract away the thing and just be left with the idea of circle. But then it's just then it's this praetor real object that just exists in the mind. But you know, circle exists in the real world but it only exists in other sensible material you've never you've never seen a circle just floating around right mm -hmm. you've never you've of never course. encountered a, a circle you've encountered a circular object and that's yes, the, we... the the yeah it's, it's a it's a nice distinction i like that i like the term praetor real again it's getting a little little pretentious but it, i think it describes <laughs> it describes nicely those those the the level of being of those objects yeah, we can maybe say uh, something abstract, like a number has existence in the mind of, not existence, is in the mind of God, but only has existence, and by existence I mean is realized when there is an object of a sensible nature which exemplifies that number. Right. Whereas the objects of, of metaphysics can't even, you, you can't have a, you know, you can't, you can't see justice, but you also can't, you, you don't, it's not just a question of putting justice in something that you can, it's now revealed. Mm-hmm. 
All right, moving. We are on page two, ladies and gentlemen. Moving yeah, we're, we're, we're of of, sev- of seventy, so we're flying along. Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll get, please just go. <laughs> on the first degree of abstraction, by which he means physica, we find two different knowledges which share the universe of the mobile or sensible real: a knowledge of the ontological order, which gives a credence to your point against there are the good fellows of Contra Gentiles, which he calls the philosophy of nature, and a knowledge of the empiriological order, the experimental sciences. And then he uses some Greek term, which I cannot translate, and says that he's using science in modern language and not how the ancients used it, I assume. It is also on this first degree that the problem, or should we say the conflict of philosophy and science, arises in its most significant fashion. And then he moves on, unless you have any comments on that, Ayn. Please go ahead. Modern phys- uh, He moves on to modern physics considered in its general epistemological type. So I'll just read the first paragraph in full since I highlighted it. As we uh, have already seen, physical mathematical science appears from the, outside, from the outset as a mathematization of the sensible. From induction, it requires a well-established empirical fact but only in order to submit it to the deductive form and the rule of explanation of the mathematical order. So it corresponds to the epistemological type which the ancients called intermediary sciences, scientiae medie, which he will use this term throughout the chapter, so I suggest, dear viewer, you get acquainted with it. Sciences which straddle the physical order and the mathematical order. They are materially physical and formally mathematical. Thus, they have more affinity with mathematics than with physics as to their rule of explanation, and yet at the same time are more physical than mathematical as to the terminus in which their judgments are verified. Now, before before you have any comments, I think this is a wonderful summation of modern physics that makes it sound um, almost appealing in how he describes it. Uh, any comments on it before I move uh, on? Well, not even not even modern physics. I mean, you see this already with Newton. Um, yes, which is yes. the, the which is classical um, mechanics, of course. Of yes, course. Uh, classical mechanics is sort of the first real empirical, well-developed mathematical model. As you sit there and is, and that's where and he'll talk more about the determinism of classical physics more later. But if you know where all your all your bodies are and how they're moving, and you know all the physics, the the idea is you can just sort of you know do do some math. You can do calculus, and you can you can solve for where everything is forever. Um, and, and, but it becomes very, it becomes equational. So we have, we sit there and we write differential equations that tell us where things are going to go and how they're going to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that this, again, like this, this really sort of becomes much, uh, much more concrete with classical physics, with, with Newton's, um, laws. But yeah, and, but we have something that is, that is, uh, formally mathematical. Again, if you, if you look at any kind of modern physics, it is math problems. It's, it's, you know, complex math word problems. Um, but like he says, it's so it's it's very much you're doing math, but the 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 end of it, the terminus, is in whether or not it agrees with some measurement. So you have some, mm-hmm. you know, you solve some math problem, and then it tells you, you know, how heavy the thing is, how fast it's moving, and then you can go and do an experiment and see if it agree if that agrees or not. Mm-hmm. So it's, it still makes that connection to the physical actually, because it there, there is some measurable thing that you need to be able to agree with. And now I think this actually quite neatly leads us into his, I think, main point of this, of, uh, shall I call it part three, paragraph three? Sure. Um, I'm not quite sure. But uh, 
this deductive synthesis, which is all formalized in mathematical because it resolves all its concepts into the me measurable, this deductive synthesis, which it constructs, is verified only by the coincidence of the numerical results of that synthesis with effectively discovered measurements. Thus, it does not follow that the mathematical beings which play a part in this synthesis actually represent real causes and entities, which are the ontological articulations of the world of sensible nature. It is only en bloc that the physical theory is verified by means of the correspondence established between the system of signs that it employs and experimentally known measurable events. Any comment on that before I move on to part four, I suppose? I, I could talk at length and I'm, I'm gonna, there'll, there'll be, there'll be times for it. And I want us to get through this in less than a, in a week. So please, please go on. And I'm sure the, the relevant points will come up later as well. All right. Well, I hope I highlighted them in your case. <laughs> by reason of the very reality on which his science is founded, by his he means the physicist, his science is founded and in which it terminates, the physical, the invincible ontological tendency of human reason as well as the pressure exercised on it in spite of everything by the principle of causality must necessarily influence him some way. He will be led necessarily to integrate into his mathematical deduction, I am saying into the domain of the science itself, to integrate into the formally mathematical explanation of observable appearances, a system of principles and causes of the physical ontological order, which he will have reconstructed for his purposes. Now, to translate Marathon into common speak, he's essentially saying that human nature and human curiosity and intellect is such that the physicist will be drawn to um, using his formalized system of symbols of mathematics and assuming that it is representing at all times real entities. It is important to observe immediately that the science is in reality, completely indifferent as to whether these explicative entities so constructed are real beings or whether they are beings of reason. If you do not remember last chapter, by beings of reason, he means things which are not, don't have existence in themselves, such that, for example, one, the number one, two, three, four, and even 1.5, 2.5 can be realized in existence. I can say there is one stone here. I can say there is 1.5 stones, taking the original stone as basis here. I cannot, however, say that the imaginary number square root of minus one, also known as I, is ever instantiated in the real world. That would be a pure being of reason. Things like that and other entities which are constructed in formal mathematical models for physics is what he means by beings of reason. It is for the philosopher, if he can, to make this distinction among the diverse entities used by the physicist. The physicist himself does not bother about that, since all that matters for him is the explicative value of these entities in function of the network of equations of the physical theory. And so his ontological appetite will be as well, if not bad, better satisfied by beings of reasons as real beings. Any comment on that before I move on to the next section? Yeah, so you mentioned at the beginning sort of this, this, this tendency in human nature to try and... Um, create these causes and I, th I think it's the very it's the natural instinct of, of a philosopher is that we and we, we see physics we see things happening you know you, you take a you take a ball you let go of it it falls to the ground 
and the the question becomes why the, the the natural thing to do is okay why did it fall um the problem is this this uh physico mathematical approach to physics doesn't it doesn't have causes equations don't have causes and, you know i can i can write down the you know the the force equals the acceleration due to gravity times the math and i can i can do all the the math that's not a cause that's an equation and so because we want to be able to say okay why does this happen the the tendency is for is for physicists acting as philosophers as we all as we all should do to some degree we'll sit there and say well the equation's doing it somehow so the equation must be representing some kind of real thing and they and they start creating these these things and that from the equations the equations end up guiding what they think is is real or not um and ultimately you know and and we see this sort of getting out again it, it exists in the time of newton we can talk about this the 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 these ideas that exist in classical physics um when we get to the the new physics as maritain calls it this just sort of goes goes um amped up to the nth degree and we have the the mathematics entirely trying to to guide our understanding of the world instead of using philosophical principle so we we have we have beings of reason that we say okay this is why something happens and is it actually why something happens you know that that becomes a philosophy question and the physicist doesn't care the equations work we can tell a nice story about it that matches the equations and so that's good enough for us mm -hmm. now the next section it's called Real Beings and Beings of Reason in Physical Mathematical Knowledge. I only have two notes here, mostly because he goes on at length to uh, argue about his points. I only highlighted two of them. He is essentially um, explaining – how do I put this? He's explaining the use of re uh, beings of reason, how they are useful, and how they're actually good. He's not railing against them in uh, a physical model – in physical mathematical models. And then he goes on to say that all – useful i've and he doesn't say useful but i think he actually says in general that all beings of reason um although i'm not sure if he would count fictions complete fictions complete lies as beings of reason so i'll just say that it's some so i'll say yeah i'll say with him that beings of reason are things which are founded on real beings so for example a square root of minus one is actually founded on real beings the square root of something is something real like we can say that square root of 64 is 8, square root of 49 is 7. We know those things. They are real because square root has a well-defined definition. Um, and it's real. It can be instantiated in something because 49 is such a number that if it is instantiated in stones, let's say, the square root of those stones are seven stones. Or you could take, um, for example, how, how big a field is. You know, if, it, if, yes. if you've got a, if you've got a square field that is seven, you know, seven meters on one side and seven meters on the other side, the total area is going to be the, the 49 square meters. And mm -hmm. so you can you can reverse that process and you can come up with what the with how long it must be on a side if it's a square. So it's, it's so the the mathematical idea of square root even comes from that physical understanding of what an area is. Yes, uh, I'll just read my two notes where I think he he gets his sort of key points. The first one is the use of uh, beings of reason. We might be tempted to think that entia rationis, which is literally just beings of reason, but in Latin, play a role only in logic capital L logics, by which he, I assume he means just formal Aristotelian logic, that would be a grave mistake. Even common knowledge continually makes use of beings of reason. For example, such is the case when we say 
evil in italics has triumphed in his soul, or this man was the victim of his own deafness, or the sun rises. For evil and deafness are privations, not essences capable of subsisting, and the sun does not really climb in the sky. And he gives the example in mathematics. Mathemati mathematics constantly forms beings of reason, such as, such as the irrational number, imaginary number, and the transfinite number. What this means, I do not know. I did not read the long footnote. Uh, then he goes on to explain, which is actually quite a useful explanation, but I didn't highlight it, so it's not important for you or me, the dear, dear viewer. Quantity, now he's talking about mathematics as such, quantity can be considered in an entirely different way. It can be disengaged from its subject, which would be the sensible real at first, by an abstractial formalis, a formal abstraction, and held before the mind in itself alone. So just quantity in the mind, not from where you're getting that quantity. So you have seven stones, now you just remove the stones and you have seven. Thus constituting by itself a separated universe of knowledge, the universe of the praetor real. It is then considered no longer ontologically or from the point of view of being, but quantitatively or from the point of view of the very relations of order and measurement which the objects of thought discernible in it, as forms or essences proper to it, maintain among themselves. So this last sentence, well, the second sentence, I suppose, uh, it is... I suppose mathematics is considering quantity ontologically and the relationship between quantities and measurements at qua quantities and measurements, not between their origin point in the real world from where you abstract it. So in this section, those are the only things that I thought were really worth uh, highlighting. In the next section, I also have somewhat scant highlights. So if you have any comments, please do share. I, I do want to just throw in there. I thought there was a, he has a quote in one of the footnotes from Kronika, who's a, um, if you dive deep enough into mathematics, you'll hear about Kronika delta functions at some point. It's the, it's the same guy. But he has this quote talking about the, the status of things like imaginary numbers, which you've mentioned, or irrational numbers or transfinite numbers. And Kronecker says, God made whole numbers, all the rest are the work of man, which I think is a, just a fantastic <laughs> quote. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's something we don't like, is even the, the idea of something like a fraction, like a one half, doesn't even, does not rise to the same level of being as the number of two, because you, you've, you've seen two ants, you've seen two birds, you've never seen half a bird, right? You've never seen three and a half birds, you've never seen the square root of two birds. We, we, we might have some quantity that we're looking at, you know, the length of a, of a um, ruler or the, the area of a football field or something like that. And we make this analogy to some standard measure that we use, and then we can come up with fractions and, and decimals and, and irrational numbers and that sort of thing. But, the, but that's a lower level of being than the whole numbers have. And I think and Kronecker nicely sums that up, that you, you, know, you can have two of something. God, God makes whole numbers. The rest of it is, is really does not is, is are beings of reason in a way that that the the whole numbers have this that the status of being praetor real. Um, everything else is kind of beneath that, even negative numbers to an extent. All right. Uh, so the next section called ontological explanations and imperiological explanation and some recastings of a notion of causality. Since I did not take some so a lot of highlights in this part, um, I'm going. If I remember correctly, 
In this, he's mostly highlighting the difference between ontological explanations and imperiological explanations. So uh, let me see if I can find the quote here because I did highlight it in such cases. All right, I'll just read the entire paragraph or else I'll butcher uh, the reasoning for the viewer and have to try and reconstruct it myself. So strap in. When we observe a material object, which is to speak the meeting place of two knowledges, sensible and intellectual, we are in the presence of a sort of sensible flux stabilized by an idea. Or to put it the other way around, an ontological or thinkable core manifested by an ensemble of qualities perceived hic et nunc, here and now. For example, on a botanical excursion, I encounter a plant previously unknown to me. It is a being of a certain species, and one which my sense of sight, smell, and touch eagerly eagerly explore in order to discern its characteristic notes. With regard to it, I may wonder, what is a vegetative living thing? I may also wonder, how will I classify it in my catalog of herbs? In such cases, there are, consequently, two ways in which our concepts may be resolved. There can be a resolution ascending towards intelligible being, in which the sensible remains, but indirectly and at the service of intelligible being, as connoted by it. And there can be a resolution toward descending towards the sensible and observable as such, in which, no doubt, we do not absolutely renounce being, for without being there would be no thought, but in which being passes into the set service of a sensible itself, and especially of the measurable and is but an unknown which assures the constancy of certain sensible determinations and certain measures, and permits the delineation of stable limits limits circumscribing the object of the senses. This is, indeed, the resolution of concepts in the experimental sciences. We may designate these two types of resolution of concepts or of explanation as ontological, in the most general use of the word, and imperiological or spatial-temporal, respectively. Do you need me to translate from Marathon to Common Sense, or did this come across all right? I mean, I understood it okay, but you're welcome to give it a shot if you think it's it's necessary. I, I mean, I, I, th- as, as, as Maritain goes, I think this is fairly understandable. All right. Uh, all right. The first explanation, the ontological, you're maintaining the sensible being in mind, but you're delving into its immaterial essence as such. Uh, and there can be, a, and the second, the imperiological or spatial temporal, is a resolution descending towards the sensible and observable as such. So, of course, so it's basically one: you're delving into the essence of something which is tense, which is immaterial, or it is only, or is more purely intelligible than sensible. And in the other, you're delving into the sensible and the observable as such, which I think is the key words here. Uh, and so the consequence of this, skipping ahead a bit, the possibility of observation and measurement for the scientist, which delves into the sensible, replaces the essence or quiddity, which philosophy, the ontologist, seeks in things, which I think is the key phrase of this little section. And and, and something I think you see very clearly in the sciences is that uh, they they descend to empiricism and kind of wallow there in some cases. 
and and as you said, it's 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 very much about the sensible. But as he says, we, we, even though we're we are answering questions of the sensible or, or empirical, we don't. Um, it's still intellectual knowledge. We are not we are not losing our our reason. We are not becoming. He says we do not become animals without reason in order to construct experimental science. But that we sort of forget, except as a background thing, that there there is an essence here that there can, that can be understood or known, and it becomes reduced to the measurable or the sensible. Mm -hmm. Now the next section, which I highlighted, comes after a spiel about um, let's see, about a little narrative about the history of physics, especially in regards to determinism. So he's sort of illustrating a problem with it. Let me try to give some context here. Maybe you can jump in and interpret me. Basically, he's saying that uh, classical mechanics induced a lot of thinkers, physicists especially, and those influenced by the ideas in physics of their time, to regard the entire universe as incredibly deterministic. Laplace's demon, the thought experiment that if there was a being such that knew the position of every body and atom in the universe and their all their past, which means he would know they were where they were heading in the immediate future. Um, he could predict all the rest of history after that. Uh, that is a thought experiment of Laplace's demon. And then he goes on to say, well, this, well, when you get to something like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, where when we're talking about small corpus schools, which is his word, um, you you're talking about you, you can't you only have a parcel of probabilities which he says is heisenberg's words for a series of waves when you get to really really small and what i highlighted for this is so we see science obliged to abandon determinism precisely under the form in which determinism is quote unquote scientific and signifies not the course of natural events and signifies not that the course of natural events excludes all contingency, but simply that on the hypothesis that certain circumstances are given at a certain instant, the laws of nature permit us to determine strictly the way in which a certain material phenomenon will offer itself for observation and measurement as a subsequent instant, which is already a sort of putting, <laughs> putting physics in its place for what it can measure and what it can predict. But continuing, so we see what has happened to the principle of causality, precisely under the form of phenomenal co-determination to which science had reduced it. It is exposed to exceptions, riddled with lacunae, deprived of its universal value, and indeed the abandonment of the properly ontological, read philosophical point of view, does not allow any protest against this result. So basically in physics, uh, you get a sort of abandonment of the principle of causality, you uh, which you see a lot in a lot in pre-Socratic and uh, Sanskrit philosophy. Pre-Socratic, I suppose, by chronology, Sanskrit philosophy. You also see this word causality is determined as two events simultaneous or a concomitance of events. And I think you get this with a lot of physics at the time. Even now, I think there isn't exactly a a strict idea of cause because cause is not a thing which can be measured and quantified. Oh, and it's almost been abandoned, and we'll I, I, again we'll we'll talk about this more later. But so starting with Newton, you have this this idea of determinism, which infects among others Kant. Um, but we we end up with these very 
we start thinking physics is going to tell us everything and, and the equations can can solve the world like you know laplace's demon can tell us everything from physics and that would include not only the behavior of you know celestial bodies or or you know cannonballs or whatever but also since we're physical it would it would you, you'd lose free will entirely is that all the atoms in our body would move into determined paths and you could plot forward the evolution of everything everyone everything is going to happen in the universe forever including the action of of living creatures um and like i mentioned earlier you know equations don't have causes in them equations are, are not they, they lack any kind of efficient cause as he said earlier that we have formal causality in the in the form of the equations but we have no efficient causality in mathematics as such and so the more mathematical physics becomes mm -hmm. the more it, it abandons the idea of any kind of efficient causality and as we get into to heisenberg and quantum mechanics um this idea sort of gets taken to its extreme and you 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 will definitely still see this. You will have serious physicists now talk about causality like it's completely illusory. As mm -hmm. we have the equations, they follow the path they follow. They're now stochastic. We have these these parcels of probabilities, as Heisenberg says. Um, but it's still just equational. That the, the results of anything are still just equational. Is there's there's it's no longer deterministic. It's just become random, which in some cases is worse. Is instead yes. of a <laughs> instead, instead of a or actually I guess overall it's worse. Because instead of a, a deterministic system where you sit there and say, okay, well, that had some cause before and now it's just following the equations that it follows. Now those equations aren't even deterministic. So it's still following the equations, but now it's, it's you know, as, as Einstein would say, God is, is playing dice with the universe at every moment in time. And there, there's, you, you lose even the, the causality of, you know, events prior to it causing it. It's because it is not completely random, but there is inherent, that you have this idea that there's inherent randomness in, in the universe, which is, um, Randomness being a being of reason in this case, the the idea of, of inherent randomness doesn't exist. Random would just mean a causal, and something mm -hmm. that isn't caused isn't. So to say that yes. something exists without a cause is 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 uh, nonsense. Yeah, but yeah, but, but you you have you have this idea, and, but but that is that is very much counter to the physics that you see developing around this time. Again, with people like Heisenberg, if you were to tell if, if they were to if you're asking why something happens, they say, well, you know, it was it happened by chance. And they would mean by absolute chance, not by something that we that we failed to understand or that we didn't take into account, but that there was, you know, that there is a random number generator sort of underneath the universe and it, you know, it came up snake eyes or whatever it was. So this thing happened, mm -hmm. um, which is which is a disaster for any kind of of realist ontology. Which is interestingly enough, parallel at at the very least, to Rothbard's criticism of the use of mathematics in uh, economics. Uh, and I'm not sure if Mises went into it, uh, Matt Rothbard being a had being gra a grad, I think, was he a grad student? Or he got a, he got a ba bachelor's degree, at least, in mathematics at Columbia. And his criticism basically was economics is entirely causal, mathematics has no causality, this doesn't work if you get really deep into it. It can only work when you're doing simple models for – not necessarily simple, but models for illustrative purposes. The fundamentals behind it cannot be mathematical. It's why I always have an affinity for the Austrian school because they they're, they seem to be the only ones that that realize this distinction. Because modern, modern economics and a lot of the modern sciences, I think, very much sort of having physics envy because physics – embraced the the mathematical so completely and so effectively like you know the, the results are so incredibly powerful in physics 
that everything and everything else has moved towards this. And we'll we'll see it later in this chapter talking about biology, but that economics has become so mathematical as it, it, it it's turned into stochastic differential equations. As you, you know, you've got an equation that you can try and solve. You just write down the model and that tells you how actual people are going to behave in the real world. And like you said, there's no cause in it. And the fact that the Austrians sort of got this is the reason that I'll always have an affinity for them because it's as, as whatever other flaws there are, they are they are they're the closest that economics has to a realist discipline by mm -hmm. a long shot. Yes, indeed they are. Now, if we are ready, we can move on to the next section, which is the new physics. And I go for uh, I believe three pages without any highlights. So if you have any comments on it, feel free to make it or interrupt me. The, one, the first highlight that I have is when he's talking about the difference of how the philosopher and the physicist would regard things such as absolute dimensions, absolute movements, and absolute time. Now, I'll read it. If you want to interrupt and go back, feel free to do so. Or if you want to wait, wait and then go back, also feel free to do so. The philosopher knows that bodies have absolute dimensions, that there are absolute movements in the world and absolute time, absolute simultaneities for events as far apart as you wish in space. Here, the word absolute signifies entirely determined in itself independently of any observer. The philosopher does not try to know what they are i.e. to discern these dimensions, these movements, these times, these absolute simultaneities at a distance with the aid of our means of observation and measurement. He willingly concedes that, that, it, that it is not possible. It is sufficient for him that they be discernible by pure spirits who know without observing from a point of space or at a moment of time. The physicist makes a like renunciation with good reason. But for him who does not philosophize and who is concerned with what he can measure and to the extent that he can measure it, the existence of these absolutes does not count. And in their place, he knows and handles only relative entities reconstructed by means of measurable determinations. Entia raciones cum fundamento in re. If I understand this, this Latin correctly... I did not run it through Google Translate, but if I did understand it, it means um, beings of reason become the, funda I think, fundamentals of reality or beings of reason f with fundaments in reality. So that he either he constructs something that which is essentially an ontology of beings of reason, whatever reading you want to ascribe to that Latin phrase. So I'll take a step back here and give some context of for course. this. So going into the, into the new physics, what what he what is meant by the new physics is Einstein's theory of relativity. Um, at this point, it would be both special and general relativity. And the the sort of newly emerging field of, of uh, quantum mechanics or, or study of quanta or you know, these very small scale interactions. And some of the things that you, so a little bit of background on spe special relativity from Einstein is we have this idea, and I, I need to be very careful about how I say this, because like I mentioned, um, what we have is very, very good equations that describe relativity theory. If you plug in the equations and compare it to a measurable result, you will get an extremely accurate answer that tells you exactly what's going on. It, the, the temptation is always to make this an explanation, is to try and, the, the, like we said earlier, the mind wants to try and turn that equation into a, into a, a cause. And so I need to be very careful about how I say things here, because what happens is people will be very 
foolhardy about how they say these things, and they'll say things that are going to contradict what the philosopher, in Maritain's words, was was saying. But what we see is when you try and measure, do measurements in due to special relativity, how fast you are moving makes a difference. So the the length of objects will appear different to you depending on how fast you are moving. Um, how fast a clock ticks will appear different to you based on how fast you are moving. So if I've got a, a clock sitting still on my desk and I see it's ticking at one second per second and I get another clock and I go zooming past it very fast because these all, this is all relative to the speed of light, which is uh, 300 million meters per second or something. I mean, incredibly fast compared to anything, any speeds we actually normally see. And you have to be somewhere close to those to get these to have an effect. But I would go zooming past that clock and I would see that it was ticking at a different rate. Time, it would look like it was ticking more slowly than it was supposed to. So I'd, I'd, I might have my own clock that's, that I see is ticking at one second per second, and the one that I go zooming past only ticks one second every other second if I was going you know, 70 or 80% the speed of light or whatever it is. And again, this is all very, very this, this is verifiable. We've done enough, uh, managed to get things going fast enough that all these things sort of check out, that this is how things tend to behave. Um, and another consequence is, is if I try and look at two events that are separated by a large distance, you know, um, if if I clap, if you and I clap our hands at the same time, right? I'll hear. Uh, well, I wasn't actually going to do it, but that's okay. Um, I can, you know, you, you hear the cl you hear my clap after you clap. I hear my your clap after I clap because the the sound has to travel to them. And so, in theory, we could try and back out, you know, when you clapped and when I clapped, and we could try and sync them up so that we actually clapped at the same time. Will be sort of the naive naive thinking. What relativity would say is if, if one of us is moving relative to the other one, events that we thought were simultaneous uh, for one of us are not simultaneous for the other one. So I might say, yeah, we clapped at the same time, but because I was moving and you weren't, you would say, no, that we didn't clap at the same time. We clapped at different times. Mm -hmm. And now we have this issue of saying, okay, well, which one of us is right? Because how do I determine if I was the one moving or if you were the one moving? Right. We could say relative to the ground, but we know that the Earth is spinning and going around the sun and the sun is going around the galaxy and the galaxy is moving very, very fast. So how do we how do we know which of us is moving and which one of us isn't? How do we say what's simultaneous and what isn't or what, what if events are simultaneous or not? How do we determine which frame to use to determine those things? And the answer that Einstein kind of gives and it sort of um, gets taken up in, in modern physics is well, you know, simultaneity isn't isn't a real thing. Simultaneity is relative. Things I say they happened at the same time. You said they didn't. the 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 question of which of us is right is a nonsense question for the physicist. Mm -hmm. And as Maritain points out, is you know, the, okay, the 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 physicist as physicist can get away with this because the measure the, any any measurements they make will will agree with with the theory. Any values they calculate will agree with the experiment. Great. What the philosopher knows is that things either happened at the same time or they didn't. Right? He might not be no have any idea how to measure which one was the which which of us had the right perspective of a third if it was a third observer that would have had the right perspective on what was simultaneous or not. But he knows that simultane simultaneity is a real thing. There there is a there is a now. I might not be able to say what that now is very far away from me, but you know what's going on in Brazil at this exact instant is a mm -hmm. is a there is a correct answer to that question, whether or not physics can deduce it, whether or not we can deduce it at all. And the philosopher realizes this must be the case. And, and he can also 
say it because he's a Catholic and he's very he's not averse to the thought experiment of a pure spirit. He can say, yes. well, imagine there is an observer yep. without a place in space time. Now, is he is that observer correct? Yes. Which is an unthinkable concept for most people, an observer <laughs> without a, a place in space time. And I love that he brings it because, because this is something that, that Aquinas, of course, did to great effect as well, is we can use the idea of an angel as a way as, as this as this comparison to our own ways of knowing mm -hmm. if you if you had a, a pure spirit it could sit there and say yep these things were at the same time nope this is this is the real rest frame this isn't i know it because i'm a spirit i'm not restricted to you know, using my senses i know the things as they are directly um but um in part because of Einstein, so because of relativity physics sort of abandons this idea that there is simultaneity and you really lose you lose the real in a sense because simultaneous no longer makes sense to the physicist mm -hmm. so he just gives up on the idea of there being a universal simultaneity um, we see a similar thing in quantum mechanics where okay is it a particle is it a wave well it's both and you you again you, you sort of lose this you know that the, the pure spirit would know the position and momentum of an object right Des, despite heisenberg's uncertainty principle we might not be able to measure simultaneously its position and its momentum, but to say that it is everywhere, that it has no momentum, stops making sense. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get into it more later, but the, yeah, but that, that's the background for what you just read. Yes, that that the that relativity has something to say about our ability to measure simultane simultaneity, and the if you just take the empirical and ignore any kind of philo philosophical considerations you you sort of throw away a real part of reality whereas the philosopher while he might say okay i might not know what simultaneous is i know that it is yes and to i guess follow up on that he uh, he doesn't quote einstein directly but a few pages on he paraphrases him um and he says quote listening to mr einstein lecturing on simultaneity it was very remarkable to hear him constantly returning to the question what does the word simultaneity mean for me, a physicist? He says, give me a definition that will tell me by what ensemble of measurements concretely realizable in each case, I can verify that two events deserve to be called simultaneous or not. Only then will I have a definition of simultaneity, which can be handled by a physicist and have value for him. There is, therefore, no question here of the essence of simultaneity, of what it is in itself. For the physicist, time, space, simultaneity, concepts entirely recast and freed from any philosophical undertone, take on a purely empirical metrical significance. One would have to be very naive to attribute any directly ontological value to that significance. Thus, Physics is freed as perfectly as possible from philosophy. And by the same token, it tends to be freed from common sense, not only from the imagery of common sense, of which it was a question at the beginning of the preceding chapter, but also from the implicit philosophy of common sense, from the natural principles and natural data of the intelligence, except in what concerns the principles of mathematical interpretation itself and ontological postulates implied by the rules of observation. This liberation from common sense is legitimate from a moment that it is accompanied by an equally broad renunciation of ontology. Now, I have highlighted the next half of the next paragraph over, but do you have any comments before we move on? Yes, the, the two things I'll say is is when he, previously he was talking about beings of reason and the the phys and he'll talk about this in more detail later. 
but what we have is that the physicist's idea of time or simultaneity or space are beings of reason. And that and that's that's good enough for the physicist. Um, the the philosopher wants to know what the act what the real thing is. The other, and, and it, he's unfortunately, or he would have lived to have seen this to some extent, but when he says he'd have to be very naive to attribute any direct ontological value to that significance, <laughs> sadly, we, we have the, the well. physics community at large and the populace in general has succumbed to that naivety. Is it is, it is incredibly commonplace for these things that, again, in the 30s, he very, very clearly understood as beings of reason. And I suspect some of the physicists did too. I think Einstein would have had a good sense that what he was doing wasn't really ontologically correct, but it was it was formulaically gave the right gave the right results. Um, but a half century later, ninety years later, people are, are are very seriously taking these as the real as the real beings instead of beings of reason, much to the detriment of the of our understanding of reality. Mm -hmm. um, and so, moving on from there. From these considerations, it follows that the idea of discovering in itself the nature of matter and of corporeal things must appear decidedly as a pure archaism for the new physics, much more decidedly than for the physics of yesterday and the day before. The scientist of today cannot indicate the essence of the real. It is precisely this which distinguishes his attitude from that of his materialistic predecessor, and still more from that of the medieval physicist. He no longer asserts that he truly attains real being, which on the contrary appears to him as enveloped in a profound mystery. And then, uh, skipping a little bit ahead, he goes on to get a quote from A. From a. Eddington, a very famous philosopher of science and physicist himself, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm just going to read the latter half and then his comment on it. So here's Eddington's, the, la the last part of Eddington's quote. The physical atom is, like everything else in physics, a schedule of pointer readings. Scientific investigation does not lead to a knowledge of the intrinsic nature of things. The external world of physics has become a world of shadows. That is Eddington's quote. Marington, Mahitan's comment is, Mr. Eddington appears to forget here that the measurements gathered from nature by our apparatus deliver to us something of the real. This may seem a shadow in regard to the universe with which we are familiar, but the philosopher knows that there are so many points of emergence for which an aspect of things existing in themselves appear to us. Any comment on this before I go on to, I guess, uh, section 16? So it's it's interesting. I noticed this a couple of times, and, and it's so interesting to think about this um, not being that long ago in, in historical terms, but we're at a point here in the 1930s when the idea of atoms or electrons are still very much sort of novel and speculative in people's minds. You know, you, you have these people that, again, he, he is very well versed in the, in the current physics and atoms are very much a hypothesis. Electrons are a hypothesis. Yes. 1932, I believe it wasn't even discovered that uh, you could split the atom. I think that was in one of the conferences, was in 1936, something like that, where Sislard, I forget his name. Uh, discovered that you could, in fact, use a use a neutron to essentially. He came up with the basic theory behind the, the Manhattan Project almost by accident. Right, but it's it's worth remembering is is we have 
and, and talking about taking beings of reason as real being, I certainly think atoms are real. I mm-hmm. certainly think electrons are real, but it's, we just sort of, if you, if you look at the, the evidence for them, it is this sort of physical mathematical equational understanding where we sit there and we build these models and say, okay, well, if atoms, then we see this and this and this, and that it's the story we tell ourselves. And they're at a point here where, the, where he, he can very much have that idea very clear in his head that, you know, okay, we can, atoms might be real. They might not. We take them as a being of reason that makes, that, that tells a convincing story. But even, you know, 90 years later, is our evidence that atoms exist any more concrete in the philosophical sense? Again, the, the, the equations certainly back up this, this idea that we have of something being atomic. And you can sit there and say, okay, we can describe nature in these ways that it sort of makes sense for there to be individual atoms. But it's still it's still completely foreign to anything sensible to us. People have you don't you never see an atom, and and you know and it is not that different than what he was saying about uh, relativity and simultaneity. That you know you, you'd be naive to take these as real things. The idea of an atom or an electron has been completely incorporated into the general psyche. And of course, those are real things. What kind of idiot wouldn't think electrons are real? Mm-hmm. But they they the our reasons for believing they are real are. are on just as firm ground as those things that are that are clearly beings of reason and relativity, it's just in that case we have we have sound philosophy to tell us that no simultaneity must actually exist. Time must actually be a real thing, um, and and philosophy as such has no kind of comment on whether or not things are are atomic. But it's it's interesting to note that we have just we have embraced that idea completely, dis, despite any direct evidence. It is entirely based on a, a physico mathematical. Um, understanding of the world that again lacks any kind of principle causality. Mm-hmm. Atoms are real, but it's again, it's uh, are, at least I think they are. But yes, uh, it, 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 it seems very it's, likely to be real. But it's but the, but that's the question: is is no one the 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 philosopher as philosopher hasn't really gotten a chance to speak? Or the, the or I should say the physicists working on this have kind of abandoned their role as philosophers to try and figure out: okay, are atoms real? Or are they beings of reason that are convenient for the way mm-hmm. with the, the the poetry we use to describe reality? Yes, Marathon later goes on to call it almost myth making, mm-hmm. and that is it's almost necessary to actually construct any model, even an ontological model, has to engage with beings of reason, this myth making capacity of the intellect to construct a a a verbal image of things. So he's not very he doesn't blame them over much. He just says they take it uh for using these beings of reason. He just says they they sort of forget that they are beings of reason. Mm-hmm. So, uh section 16, he talks about um two impulses that he has previously described in the new physics. So, which appear contradictory at first. He says on the one hand, an impulse of the mind towards the physical itself and the proper mysteries of its behavior, a desire for physical realism. On the other hand, the construction of a world of symbols and a recourse more decided than ever to mathematical and geometric being of reason. This contradiction, however, is purely apparent. We said the physicist wishes to know the nature of corporeal things and their physical causes. Did we say he wishes to know this nature in itself and these causes in themselves? We said that, he's the, that he does not attempt to know in themselves the nature of things and their physical co- 
and their physical causes, and reduced to their essential meaning, the phrases which we have just quoted from Mr. Eddington signify nothing else. Did we say that he abandoned all, that he abandons all attempts to know them in any way? The impulse that spurs him towards the physical real can attain this real only in its measurable aspects themselves, in its measurable structure as such that is, by mathematizing it, and finally by constructing something in its place, the physicist wishes to penetrate the secrets of matter. But the very type of knowledge to which he is bound prohibits him from attaining the nature of matter in itself. He attains it in the observable and measurable, and thereby real, determinations which are for him the substitutes for the essence, and he scrutinizes it and fathoms it to a very degree that he mathematically symbolizes it. Let us say that his knowledge is not a knowledge of the real, the given real, by the real, by a more profound real, but a knowledge of the real by the mathematical praetorial. So translating Mariton to common sense, he's saying that he their knowledge of the real is not real by the things in themselves, but they have a knowledge of, of the real via the mathematical praetor real, the abstractions, as we discussed earlier. It is a knowledge of the physical real which becomes symbolic to the extent that its mathematical regulation obliges it to attempt a complete explanation of the real, wherein things, the form and formation of which belongs to a world of qualities, will be formulated in a wholly quantitative fashion. Or, again, if it is permitted to use an old platonic word, more expressive than perhaps the modern word symbol, it is, at least as to the second moment of theoretical elaboration which we were just speaking, a knowledge of the physical real by way of myths, as I alluded to earlier. I mean verified myths. That is to say, myths which agree with the measurable appearances and which save the latter. A science or knowledge of the physical real at once experimental and mythopoetical, which is a, a very interesting way to describe physics. But very accurate. I mm -hmm. have to take it aside. The the sentence construction there, and, and you, you read it well, and it was intelligible. The... <laughs> he, he, it's, I, knowledge I think it's, of the it's... real by the real, by a more profound real is... Uh, Kind of screwy, to say the least. It's uh, I, I find his prose so beautiful sometimes, but it is yes. so easy to get lost because these sentences will just go and go and go. And there's a parenthetical and another parenthetical uh -huh. and another side and three footnotes. Um, so it's... Yeah, three footnotes <laughs> in this page exactly, by the way. Congratulations. <laughs> you yeah. got it exactly right. Um, but no, I, 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 the, I think I might have mentioned in a previous podcast the idea that... that, that um, physicists and i think scientists in general have become poets there's they're something mythopoetical i think i love that term mythopoetical mm -hmm. but that that we we have experimental results we have measurable results we have equations and then we don't really have ontology right everything has has, has on in the in the intellectual plane has taken this descent down into the empirical and not up into the ontological but as humans we crave the ontological we want to know what is we wanted to know why we want to answer that question why and the only tools the the physicist or the modern scientist really has to avail himself to answer those questions are equations, and so he has to invent myths around those equations. Um, mm -hmm. 
that again that that, that conform to the to the experiments. You know, the, the if you try and validate or verify the myth and say, okay, well, if you say, okay, this myth would imply this, and you go and do an experiment, it gives you the result. That doesn't mean the myth was correct. It just is you you have you failed to falsify it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, reading on, this is what gives the theoretical physics to its most, this is what gives to theoretical physics and to its most inspired discoveries such striking kinship with artistic creation. It is, but it is a question, and this is the marvel, of speculative, of a speculative art, of an art for the sake of knowing, in which the imagination is inventive only in submission to the constraints of a world of rigorous determinations, of laws established by restricted exactitude. In the previous chapter, we noted that Plato perceived in a very clear fashion the proper method of a, of a mathematical knowledge of nature. He likewise saw, and with equal profundity, that the creation of scientific myths, the noblest species of beings of reason founded in reality, is a necessary consequence of this method. The myths of a Timaeus, a Socratic dialogue for those unaware, have grown old. But it was not as a confession of impotence or as an escape into poetry that the Timaeus used myths. It was in virtue of an admirable intuition of the proper conditions of physical mathematical knowledge and of what are called the exact sciences. When ceasing to be purely mathematical, they undertake to explain the world of experience. Aristotle was engaged in a different task, a task which Plato had not seen. He founded the philosophy of sensible nature. And to that, he had to attack the Platonic metaphysics and the theory of ideas. But although he recognized the existence of the intermediary sciences, this is the physical mathematical reminding viewers, and with the theory of homocentric spheres, had himself constructed a first-rate physical mathematical myth. He seems to have accorded to these spheres a full ontological value, a reality not only fundamental as to their foundation of the nature of things, but formal and entire as to their formality, to their thinkable constituent itself. Because the point of, the philo because the point of view of the philosopher of nature predominated in him, he did not see as well as Plato did the aspect of ideality necessarily embodied in the mathematical knowledge of a phenomena of nature precisely as exact science. Now, do we have any comments on this before we move on to my favorite little section of this chapter? I do not. You go right ahead. All right, he is talking. This is one of my, this is actually one of my favorite thought experiments I've run across in a long time. It has a high resemblance to, um, I believe it's Mary's Room, um, or what Mary doesn't know. I forget what it's called, but I'll just, I'll just unfortunately have to read it in its entirety again at the risk of staying here for the next two days. So. Let us suppose that a scientist who is sealed in a room of ground glass and receives by radio the experimental information on which he works learns one day about a certain machine capable of hurling its own weight to a height 300 times its own. He will not have much difficulty in roughly imagining this machine, unknown in itself to him, as a sort of catapult constructed according to the furnished data. He will correct and make the image more precise as new information reaches him. Suppose he learns that this machine manifests the properties of what men call memory. 
That is to say, it modifies in proportion as it functions its very manner of functioning and of reacting to stimuli, a thing, a thing which his reconstructed apparatus does not do. Perhaps he will solve the difficulty by endowing the space occupied by this apparatus with some new dimension, according to which the past of the machine would be preserved and would modify in some invisible manner its very structure. We who walk the streets and put up at inns can know that the machine in question is called a flea. This scientist will not know this, but the construction that he ceaselessly alters turns upside down if necessary to meet a crisis will present at each instance the sum of all the measurable properties found in the flea and actually known by him. Obviously, in creating such a construction which is itself fictitious, but founded on the real and always exactly and rigorously determined, in that way he will acquire ever more and more profound knowledge about the nature of the flea, but always by the way of myth and of symbol. It would be inaccurate to say that he does not know this nature. He simply does not know it ontologically or in itself. Which I think you can almost skip the rest of 16 because that's almost just enough for all of it because the rest is an elaboration on this point. And you mentioned the sorry. you mentioned Mary's room or the what Mary didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I was looking that that the original dates to like 1982 or something like that. Yes. So 50 some, years later, yeah, almost Mar- exactly. I think this was published 1932, actually. So, so Maritain really is is preempting that in that that entire. So, the, that thought experiment. Uh, do you do you want to summarize Mary's room real quick? All right, I can summarize Mary's room. So basically, there is a girl named Mary. She is a young scientist. She is born and raised in a colorless room. She, all she knows is a world without colors. However, she is given all the information about colors. In fact, in the full thought experiment, I believe she is given all scientific information about the natural world possible. You will see why this is so later. But especially that of colors. You see, so she knows everything about the electromagnetic spectrum. She knows all about the human retina and how it sees the electromagnetic spectrum and so on. And when the thought experiment goes on to ponder, she then leaves the room and sees a world of color. She sees a red apple. She sees green grass. She sees a brownish tree. Has she learned something new? If she has, then scientific knowledge about material qualities is not all there is to know. And there is such a thing as immaterial of knowledge of the immaterial or knowledge of experience, which is called qualia in modern or contemporary ter- philosophical terminology. And if that is so, then the mind can't be purely material because the mind is what receives the, da- the data. That is the basic thrust of the argument. And she, the thought experiment says she's given all of the data of the natural world aside from color so that, you know, a materialist can say, well, that actually depends on knowledge outside of the electromagnetic spectrum and so on. It's to preempt that sort of objection, which is a very interesting thought experiment, which I think is incredibly powerful for a first time reader, for the lay reader, especially, maybe not for the committed materialist philosopher, but for everyone else, I think it's a great little thought experiment to ponder. Unless they'd read Maritain and then who preempted it by 50 years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, talking about something else and not completely different. He's really talking about, well, you don't actually have the full knowledge. In and that and just, room. To, just, 
just to reiterate the final thing he says, is it would be inaccurate to say, and this is again talking about the, the scientists in the mm -hmm. fleet, but it would apply equally well to, to Mary and the idea of color, mm -hmm. is it would be inaccurate to say that he does not know this nature. He does not know it ontologically or in itself. And yes. it, again, just cap captures the exact difference that, that that thought experiment 50 years later is going to going to trouble over. Everything gets so much simpler when you work in, uh, in Aristotelian terms. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. It really does. Now, the rest of 17, I highlighted something else, but it's basically a reformulation of that um, commenting on Eddington, so I don't feel I need to read it unless... I, I think that's okay. Let me ask you real quick. So we're, we're an hour 20 minutes in. Yes. We are 30 pages into a 70-page chapter. Uh, um, yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> do, do we want to turn this into a two... Like, uh, we can maybe do one more section or two, but then do we want to turn this into a two-parter so we're not here for three hours but can still give things... Adequate time? Yeah, I, we probably will. Uh, okay. Okay. So I. So think... I'll, I'll, I'll. So there's there's a part two to this chapter that, I'm, and my version starts on page one eighty four for the philosophy of nature. Let's let's. Yeah, let's I, I remember. I remember that. I okay. I think that's a much smoother part, if I remember correctly. At least for so, me, it was. Well, let's get to that and just stop and and call it there if that works for you. All right. And and then we so. can pick up and do those last thirty pages another time. Mm -hmm. And 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 also we'll we'll, be, we'll put up more content this week, so we're not people aren't waiting two more months for us to read the next chapter. Yes, um, okay. you will be pleased to know that the next section is almost entirely in your hands, Ein. It is called <laughs> digression on the question of real space. My one highlight for this entire section is the second paragraph, which reads the word "real." has not the same meaning for the philosopher, the mathematician, and for the physicist. If we are aware from the outset of this diversity, the question here posed, what is real space, is nothing more than a nest of equivocations. Now, uh, dear reader, I can give the basic summary of my impression of this chapter. It is him arguing through mostly ways that are opaque to me that euclidean geometry is the real geometry and that all of our non-euclidean geometries are beings of reason which are founded upon concepts or use and manipulate and distort purposefully and for useful uh useful ends euclidean geometry do you have any comment of this sign because while this is interesting for a scientist and a mathematician and it is of interest to me. It's not something I can actually explain at all. <laughs> so it's it's definitely worth going into a little bit. So this is all relates all right. to to Einstein's general theory of relativity. So I, I gave a very quick sort of synopsis of the special theory of relativity, which for whatever re for reasons that make sense, but the naming is very confusing, came first. Um, the special relativity theory was was derived first, and the general theory of relativity followed it. Um, what you see in the general theory of relativity is he starts incorporating the effects of gravity into his theory. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to invoke these, these uh, physics myths or poems that Maritain was talking about. We start getting this idea of what, what gets called curved space time. So we, we think about the world normally and your, your natural intuition of it is, is it's a Euclidean space is parallel lines never cross. There are three dimensions that are orthogonal to each other, so they're all at right angles, and they're they're independent of one another. And there's no straight lines stay straight, basically. But you can imagine other geometries. One of the classic examples you think of is if is if you had a, a if you were on the surface of a ball, for example, 
and you thought it was it was a big enough ball that you think it's a flat plane, but it's a very, very big ball and you're walking around on that surface. Or, you know, like the globe, for example. Mm-hmm. And if you walk far enough in one direction, you'll actually get back where you started, which doesn't happen on a, on a flat plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can imagine, um, what's, a, what's a good way of sort of doing this? So we could have a situation mm-hmm. where you start, let's say you start at the equator. In, in um, Yeah, so you're at some point on the equator and you walk due north for a long time until you get to the North Pole. And then you take a right turn and you start walking again. Okay, so you were walking due north from the equator to the North Pole. You took a, it made a right angle, right turn, and you started walking due south until you get back to the equator. Mm-hmm. And then you take another right angle turn and start walking straight ahead again, and we'll eventually get back where you started. And, and, and making a right angle to the point you originally came out on. So you can imagine that big triangle with your starting point in the equator as one point, the North Pole is another point, and where you came back to the equator is the third point. You could imagine that big triangle on your globe. Each one of the angles of that triangle is 90 degrees. So your triangle now has 270 degrees in it instead of the 180 that it's supposed to have. So you can see geometry works different on the surface of a sphere than it would in a flat space. Okay, So the surface of a sphere would be an example of a non-Euclidean geometry, a curved space. Mm-hmm. Okay, now back to general <laughs> relativity. Um, the the equations of general relativity lend themselves very well to replacing our normal three dimensional flat Euclidean space with a curved space where where massive things, stars, black holes, anything that has mass, heavy things, actually bend space locally around those points. And so your motion of them follows the contours of that bend, and you can describe your motion that way. And this is again, this is the 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 being of reason that gets constructed to describe motion due to the the effect of really really heavy things. Okay, Maritain is asking. Okay, the, the, this is the being. This is the 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 being that gets used, just like ideas like simultaneity got used in special relativity. Is space is is space time whatever that is? Is it actually curved? Is is the geometry of the universe actually? non-Euclidean, is it actually curved or is it a Euclidean geometry? Um, so his, his first point is you know, the, the mathematician would say, okay, if it's if it's self-consistent, it's real. Um, the the second point he goes into is the, the physicist would say, okay, does it does this correctly reproduce experimental results? Does this does this does this framework with this curved space-time give me results that are consistent with measurement? And if so, the physicist would say they are real. Okay. Once again, the philosopher cares about what is actually real. You know, what what is space actually? What is its actual shape and and um, the way it's put together? Um, and so it, it turns out. So even though the general relativity is typically cast in this way of talking about curved space time, you can you know do the the proper transformations from a non Euclidean Euclidean space to a Euclidean space, and you get you get forces that move you around. But you can certainly write down general relativity and get all the answers correct and make all the measurements correct if you assume space is entirely Euclidean, right? And, and in fact, there's the I can't remember who the the modern mathematician was that sort of proved that all these things are are, are interconnected that you can transform from any geometry to to a different one, uh, but they are all, all interconvertible in a mathematical sense. So we have this question of what the real one is, and what what Maritain resolves to, and I think this is correct. It's 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 
weird to think about because they're, again, our, everything that we hear in modern times, like again, you know, atoms are real, electrons are real, space time is curved. And it's just sort of those things, that, you know, you, you have no ex sense experience of that. What you see is Euclidean space, but you're told, no, that the math tells us that it must be non-Euclidean. Um, Maritain concludes that space in reality must be Euclidean. And he does that by, again, by um, connecting to the sensible is the only way we understand non-Euclidean geometry. The only reference we or referential we have to say, like what things are like on the surface of a ball is we need to know what Euclidean geometry is like. And again, I, I need to sort of digest this idea a little bit more but and, and see what I think about it because it's a subtle argument, but it's a cool one. Mm -hmm. But he concludes that, you know, that, that for, the, the, for what the philosopher cares about, which again, is what is, what is actually real, that we have to conclude that that space, whatever that means, is Euclidean, and so the 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 proper understanding of general relativity again, the, the all the the measurements come out the exact same, all the experiments give the same results, but the the proper casting for general relativity is in a is in a flat space time that you know has whatever extra forces it needs acting to correctly reproduce the experiments, as opposed to the way it's typically cast, where you just say okay, it's curved, and the results fall out naturally from this from this curvature that we that we treat that again what, what Mertang was is purely a being of reason but a, a convenient one to facilitate mathematical uh calculation was that coherent no that <laughs> was very good in fact uh after this section it begins the philosophy of nature which where we agreed to stop so i propose that actually you said you wanted to think more on this that i reread the section I take some more notes because it is blank except for that little paragraph I highlighted and read out to everyone and actually revisit it and see what we think of it. Because I remember I found most of his argument cogent. I couldn't really comment on it or summarize it to, to a new reader. But I found most of his argument good because essentially if I can boil it down to the bare essentials of what I understood is that Every other possible geometric space constructed relies on Euclidean notions to do so. If they cannot ever be the first space that is intuitively constructed. So he's essentially saying that it is necessary to construct all other types of geometric spaces, but we first construct the Euclidean space. And so that is the real one, quote unquote. I need to see, because uh, he gives different definitions of real here, because again, he says this is a mayor's nest of equivocations. So it's important to get uh, all the de definitions of real, and now it's used by several people right here. Yes, yeah, so I like, so we want to pick up next time and we'll, we'll revisit this idea of space is real and we'll go from there. Yeah, let me see how many pages it is. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's nine pages of uh, philosophy of nature. So it's nine pages that I will uh, reread. Philosophy of nature. I'll just take a look at my at my highlights. I think because I, for the most part, I highlighted. I'll skim the rest, which I didn't. Uh, I, philosophy of nature. My one, my one small comment is they he writes Mendeleev from Mendeleev's periodic table as Mendelejev. I noticed J, that. That was, a, that was a weird. I underlined in red because that really weirded me out. That was really funny to me. I had a hard time. Like, wait, who's that? I was wondering if it was some weird like old-fashioned way of translating a, a different from a different alphabet at some point but i don't that i think it has just to a, be um yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna 
dive into that in some detail because it was that, that caught me as well. Like, wait, who? Who? Who's periodic <laughs> yeah, table? Like, Hindu was once instead of H I N D U, it was H I N D O O. Like, if you read mm -hmm. Chesterton, that's how he writes it, for example. Yep. So I assumed it was something like that, a different, just a different way of spelling. Like, I'm sure it probably says Mendelev, like, in maybe, I think, in whatever, I don't know how, how it, I don't know. I actually have no idea how it's pronounced in Russian. Maybe it is Mendeleev or Mendeleev. I have, don't know. But in normal English, when I was, how I was taught this Mendelev. Yep. We need to get, we need my... to get a Russian speaker. I was probably, yeah, not, probably not allowed anymore against YouTube's terms of service, but <laughs> probably. But that's my one comment on philosophy of nature so far. To not completely jump the gun, I was just <laughs> skimming it, and I I saw a, the one red underline I used for chapter was on Mendela Jeff <laughs> or whatever <laughs> it's called, and I because I was really puzzling over that until I like made the connection with the oh periodic table or he says table, and then I was like oh no table periodic table okay got it. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Okay. I did. I did actually. I was very happy that you were. You were also puzzled by it. <laughs> it wasn't just me. But all right. So we reread the last nine pages, and then we regroup um, next year or some point in the next decade. Well, no. That's that's the thing. We've read it already, so we could do that. Because that, that's what's the the reason these go so slowly. Besides me just being a slacker for the most part, mm -hmm. is uh, I hope uh, Bulge is impressing upon this, uh, impressing this upon our readers that this is not easy reading like i will definitely i've been trying to do it a lot before going to bed some nights and i will definitely notice like i'll read two or three pages and be like i need to reread yes all of it because it just was not it's this is not an easy read yeah if we made it seem like easy reading i will actually be very happy i will say yes. mission accomplished yes but since we have already read all of chapter four and we just want to make sure we get notes on it we can probably we will and this might be a good way going forward of just trying to break these up a little bit, just so we can we can not do these every two months. We can do this in a, like maybe next week or the week after we can go ahead and do part two. I mean, we um, can do next week so that I don't forget everything and I'll just skim. That is a good idea. Weekend. Yeah. So so you guys will have, be able to look forward to part two. I have no idea when this is going out. Caleb's picking the the posting dates, but mm -hmm. within the next week or so, we will go ahead and record part two and uh, and finish this up, and then. I think after that we start moving on into so that was since this will be sensitive sensible knowledge. Uh, after this, do we start getting into Let me yeah check. metaphysical knowledge and then mystical experience? Yep. I'm excited. So because uh, yes. to to full disclosure, so this is the part of the book that I was sort of most familiar with what was going on with and and sort of had, mm -hmm. had read the most related to as it relates to physics these sorts of things. So I, I had some idea of what what was coming and was looking forward to it. I don't really know what he's going to say about metaphysical knowledge or about mysticism. I mean, but the I mean, first I'm incredibly words, excited for it. The, the first words of chapter five are dianoetic di, di, intellection and perinoetic intellection. So we're in for a treat I, so, in chapter five. Also, he be, dedicates it to his He specifically dedicates the chapter to his That wife, chapter is dedicated to Risa, yeah. Which is beautiful. both an interesting, it's beautiful, but it's an interesting choice to not dedicate the book. Just, just the chapter, that chapter. <laughs> which, which is an but <laughs> I don't think most wives would find this at all interesting. Raisa was probably the I one, feel like they, they, one exception. They were a special couple. Yes, they were a very special couple. We can say that much at least. 
<laughs> I mean, they might have been the one French couple in history which did not have children in wedlock or out of wedlock, as far as we are aware. <laughs> the one in history, so they're quite the exception to many things. How can that man not be a saint? <laughs> Indeed. And, Fr- I mean, they French both retired chaste? to monasteries. Yeah, yeah, French and Chase, they both retired to monasteries in like the last five years of their lives, if I remember correctly. They both agreed to do it when he was like when they were they were both like eighty five. He joined a I forget which order, but he joined an order as a a lay brother and lived in a monastery for the last five years of his life. Beautiful. It certainly right. is. Appreciate everyone that's that's tuning in to listen to these. Hope they're enjoyable. Let us know uh, how we're doing, and we will get back to you sooner rather than later this time. Have a lovely. Whatever it is where you're watching this. I'm going to assume evening. No one's watching this first thing in the morning. I hope not. Peace.